The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is The Grand Charter. The Grand Charter. Our text, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. So it's a joy to be with you here this morning, back in our ongoing verse-by-verse trek through Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. And our joy is amplified this morning by the fact that our journey through this letter has now brought us to the foot of a mountain. Uh, Many have called it the Great Eight, (laughs) the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, and one of the most significant chapters in all the Bible. One of the reasons, or one of the the reasons attributed to the significance of this book is its magnificent exposition of the gospel. Redemption arranged in the electing love of the Father, redemption accomplished by the obedience and death of the incarnate Son, redemption applied by a work of the Spirit. From start to finish, this is high gospel revelation. From the declaration of no condemnation that opens the chapter to the declaration of no separation that closes it. Uh, the Puritan Thomas Jacob opened his 400-page commentary on the first four verses of this chapter with these words. I find myself under a strong inclination to engage in it when I consider the transcendent excellency, preciousness, usefulness of that matter which the Spirit of God lays before us in this chapter. Who would not be willing to take pains in a mine that has such treasures hid in it? Where the breast is so full, who would not be drawing from it? I think I should not hyperbolize, should I say of it, search all the scriptures, I will accept none. Turn over the whole word of God from beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, you will not find any one chapter into which more excellent, sublime, evangelical truths are crowded than this which I am entering upon. Lloyd-Jones recounts someone referring to the Bible, all of the Bible, as being a glorious collection of priceless gems. And among the invaluable treasures in that that vast collection, one might say that the most lustrous stones of all are found in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and the brightest gem in that cluster would be Romans chapter 8. From a practical standpoint, from a practical standpoint, of the many passages contained in the Bible that God's people turn to again and again for help, for comfort, for encouragement, hope, faith, joy, assurance in their time of need is Romans chapter 8. How many of those passages, those comforts, those encouragements are right here in the 8th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome? The opening words of verse 1 have been a, a regular refrain in my own heart and mind over the years. Since the Lord saw fit to save me, I have repeated those words countless times. How many of you would say the same? Amen? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. How many times? Right? How many times we quoted that precious truth? Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What a glorious, glorious promise. I'm persuaded 
They neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are 10-pound diamonds that are just laying on the ground in this chapter for us to pick up. 10-pound diamonds. The scriptures as a whole are of inestimable value. And far better, maybe far more appropriate than saying Romans 8 may somehow be the best of the best, so to speak, the way some characterize it. It'd be far better to conceive of how, of how all of Scripture points to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. And maybe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ finds its, most, its highest most developed expression in the text of this chapter. It is grand. It is magnificent. It is glorious. It is an astounding piece of work. And brothers and sisters, it is going to be a privilege spending the next couple of years working through Romans chapter 8. (laughs) Now Paul opens this chapter And Paul provides the context for the chapter by making a very very profound assertion in verse 1. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In the original language, the first word in the sentence is no. No condemnation then at this present time to those in Christ Jesus. So with the use of that simple conjunction, remember what that means? That simple conjunction therefore or it could be translated then. Paul draws to a close the point that he was making in the previous chapter, and he arrives now at the theme to which the previous chapters have all been pointing. And the theme is this. The assurance, the confidence, the guaranteed hope of the one who has been justified by faith alone in Christ alone apart from works of the law. That's the theme. That's the point of this chapter. That's the theme to which Paul has been pointing since Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7. He's been making his way now to chapter 8, the security of the believer, the assurance of the one who has come to Jesus Christ with nothing more than the open hand of faith. Well, how can I be sure of my salvation when I don't contribute anything to it? Paul's going to prove it to you. Paul's going to prove it to you. Our salvation, our justification by faith alone in Christ alone is so certain, so sure, so secure. And it's secure for the very reason, precisely because it is by faith alone in Christ alone. Think with me now, think with me now, and consider how Paul's argument all along, how Paul's thought all along has come to terminate upon this theme. It's very important that we understand this and very important how you see this progression to where we are now in Romans chapter 8. Think with me. Turn back to chapter 3. A couple of pages to the left. Chapter 3. Remember, (laughs) you are a guilty sinner. You are a guilty sinner. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There are none who seek after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. I think I'm a pretty good guy. No, you're not. There is none who does good. No, not one. Verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. Just put your hand over your lips. 
All the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You will not be saved by your works. You're not saved by being a good person, right? Chapter four, praise God. He has provided a way for sinners to be justified, provided a way for sinners to be, to obtain a right standing before God, not by his good works, not by his own righteousness, that would be impossible, but rather God has provided a way for sinners to be justified based entirely upon the finished work based entirely upon the perfect righteousness of another. That righteousness is secured through the perfect obedience and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son. It is given, that righteousness is given, it is credited, it is imputed as a free gift of God's grace and imputed, brothers and sisters, through the the instrumentality or the means of faith, alone in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any works of our own. A justification of which Abraham is a quintessential example. Verse 16, verse 16. Therefore it, justification, salvation, it is of faith so that it might be according to grace. In other words, not according to works, but according to his freely offered gift. And why did the Lord intend to save us in this way? Why is our salvation by grace through faith having nothing to do with our own works? Verse 16, so that the promise, the promise of the new covenant might be sure, might be certain, might be assured to all the seed, not only of those uh, ethnic Jews who are of the law, but also to those Gentiles who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Why is it by faith? So that it might be according to grace. Why is salvation by grace through faith? So that it might be sure to all the seed. Do you see? You mean there's nothing I can do to earn it? Nothing I contribute? That's right. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What about my sin? What about my sin? Well, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be forgiven of your sin. You shall be saved. Repent of your sin. Turn from living in sin. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Well, Lord, how can I know that my salvation is assured when my salvation has nothing to do with me? Do you see the the importance of the question? Do you see? If it has nothing to do with me, how can I be assured of it? Even Abraham struggled with that question, didn't he? Lord, (laughs) how shall I know that I will inherit it? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, right? Even Abraham struggled with that very question. So this letter to the church at Rome, Paul says in this letter, I want you to be sure. I want you to be certain. I want you to have assurance of this great salvation. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove to you that it is certain. Chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have, we now enjoy everlasting peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The verb's there in perfect tense. That work has been accomplished. That's our status. Ours, brothers and sisters, is a guaranteed hope, verse 5, that will not disappoint. And you have the Spirit of God given to you as a pledge of your inheritance. Well, how could God love me, a sinner? Verse 8, 
God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, having been justified by his death, shall we be saved through his life? Not only that, but you have been united to Christ through faith. Verse 15, if it's true that those born in Adam all die, then how much more will those born again in union with Jesus Christ reign in everlasting life? Is it true that people die? Two things certain, death and taxes? No, there's one of those things that's certain. Death is certain. People die. If that's true, and everyone dies in Adam, then how much more true is it that those who are united to Jesus Christ will live and reign in everlasting life? What about my remaining sin, my remaining corruption? Doesn't my my indwelling sin somehow disqualify me in the eyes of God? Chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of our sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin, freed from sin's dominion, freed from sin's slavery. Sin, verse 14, will no longer have dominion over you. When you died in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, you not only died to the penalty of sin, you died to the power of sin and to the dominion of sin. What about the law's condemnation? The law condemns me, chapter 7. You've died to the condemnation of the law, verses 1 through 6. What about the ongoing warfare with sin that continues to rage within me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Chapter 7. You're going to fight that battle. You're going to fight that battle till the day you die. And then you'll finally be delivered, thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, when our mortal puts on immortality. There is no reason to doubt God's plan. It is a glorious plan of redemption, a glorious plan of salvation. Put your faith and trust in him. There is no reason to doubt. It is assured to all the seed. Why? Because it has nothing to do with your works. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is with, with infinite wisdom, with meticulous loving kindness that God has secured for us through his beloved son a sure and certain and unassailable salvation to the praise of his grace and to the glory of his son. Chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you get the sense with me that that Paul is laboring on our behalf to cultivate within us an assurance of our right standing with God? That's what Paul is doing, isn't it? Paul is laboring with us to give us an assurance of God's faithfulness to his word. Embrace these promises is what Paul is saying, right? Embrace them in faith and think with me for a moment. Imagine with me for a moment. Imagine with me the kind of bold, joyful, thankful, fearless, courageous, confident, devoted, zealous, fervent, earnest, 
loving, worshiping Christians we'd be if we lived in the full assurance of these promises. Do you see? It's meditation on those promises, the word of God to us that, that fuel and drives our faith. You want to be devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Meditate on these truths. Embrace through faith, apprehend through faith these realities, and it'll change how you live your life. This opening assertion at the outset of chapter 8 is critical consider concerning the Christian's bitter experience with his remaining sin described in chapter 7, in particular verses 14 through 25. That opening assertion is precious to the believer considering that bitter experience with sin that Paul describes in those verses that precede it, right? Though at times it may not appear so, the Christian has been freed from the dominion of sin and death. Having been freed from the dominion of sin and death, the Christian is free from condemnation. Paul's therefore, at the outset of chapter 8, is a welcome comfort, isn't it? Paul's therefore, at the outset of chapter 8, is a, a strong encouragement to the Christian who is going through that warfare against the old man. If you're in battle against your sin, facing that warfare, Paul's therefore at the beginning of chapter 8 is a blessing. As difficult and as trying as that warfare may be, as it often is, in answer to the anguish of heart we see expressed by the Apostle Paul in his ongoing resistance to sin, in answer to that anguish of heart that you and I often feel in our ongoing battle against sin, this is our reality. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you have that memorized yet? Say it over and over again (laughs) to yourself. There's two points I'd like to ask you to consider from verse one. First, our security, and second, our surety. Our security and our surety. Notice first, our security. Our security is this. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. That's our assurance. That's our confidence. That's our security. The Christian has been placed in a position. The Christian has been conferred with a status in which he is afforded complete security. The Christian has been given a position in which he has been afforded safe harbor. That safety that he's been promised... The security that he enjoys is from condemnation. We've been given freedom, rest, safe safe harbor from condemnation. Dr. Murray is helpful here. Condemnation is the opposite of justification. (laughs) Justification implies the absence of condemnation. Since justification is the complete and irreversible justification of the ungodly, it carries with it the annulment of all his condemnation. In other words, justification and condemnation are mutually exclusive. Mutually exclusive. You can't have a condemned, justified man. You can't have a justified man who is condemned. You can't have a condemned man who is justified. It would no more be possible for a command a condemned man to be justified in the sight of God than for a justified man through faith in Jesus Christ to come under condemnation of any kind. To the justified, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We've been conferred a position, conferred with a status that affords us complete security. It's a glorious position. 
right? A lot of the Christian life, brothers and sisters, is, is growing in our understanding of, love for, and appreciation for that truth. <laughs> that we've been afforded that status. It's going to change how you live. It's our status as justified in the sight of God that renders any condemnation under the law as entirely null and void. The law simply has no jurisdiction by which to condemn us. Do you see? We enjoy a position of complete security. Now that security then, conferred on the basis of our justification, has been conferred through faith. Not by any works of your own. It's a gift of God. That status has been conferred through faith. In fact, Paul's statement here in verse 1 mirrors Paul's statement that opens chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation, right? There is no condemnation. Now think with me. Think with me. The word therefore not only connects this promise to our justification, that is the subject of chapters 4 and 5, but the word therefore also, now think with me, doesn't it? The word therefore also more directly connects this promise of chapter 8 verse 1 to the con content of chapter 7 that immediately precedes it. I'm going to make a case that it connects us to both. But the chapter, chapter 7, chapter 7 is concerned with the Christian's ongoing relationship to his ongoing experience with indwelling sin. Paul that indwelling sin, Paul now refers to in verse 2 as the law of sin and death. So chapter 7 deals with the law of sin and death. Chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. The therefore connects the content of chapter 8, verse 1, that promise of chapter 8, verse 1, to the content of chapter 7 that immediately precedes it. Now, it's in the light of that immediate context that the word translated now there in verse 1 encourages us calls for us to see our security, to embrace that promise of God, not only in the context of our justification and freedom from the guilt of our sin, that's chapter 5, but also to see that glorious promise in the context of our sanctification and our ongoing resistance against the power of sin in chapter 7. So when Paul says, I'm going to make this case to you, we're going to get there when we look at verse 2. When Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters, don't only think of that as merely relating to our justification, where the guilt of our sin has been removed, but think of that in terms of our sanctification and our ongoing battle with sin. And how must that promise of no condemnation then empower and drive and motivate our battle against sin as the Lord sanctifies us? Do you see? It becomes a glorious promise in our sanctification. It may sound a little bit strange to think of those things related in that way. We're going to get there in a moment. I'm going to show you how that works. Now notice second. First, our security. Our security. Notice second, our surety. That promised security, that safe harbor from condemnation, is not a blessing that is enjoyed by everyone. That safety is only for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He is our surety. Not only is he our surety, he's our only 
surety. He is the only surety. There's no other name given among men, given under heaven, whereby we must be saved. He is the mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is our only protection against condemnation. Chapter 6. We were united to Jesus Christ in the likeness of his death to sin. Well, certainly also then, we have been united to Jesus Christ in the likeness of his resurrection. You remember those texts with me? Our old man was crucified. The body of our sin was done away with. And our union with Jesus Christ then is the basis of our Christian life in which we walk in newness of life. A sinner is brought into that vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ on the basis of faith. When you turn from sin and repentance, when you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, the Christian, and this is mysterious, we don't understand how all this works, but the Christian is brought into a spiritual union, a vital union, a living union. It is as if the branch is connected, tapped in directly to the vine and receives power and strength and supply from the vine. Right? We are brought into spiritual union with the one who purchased our redemption with his own blood. It's that blessed union purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, penalty paid in full, guaranteed by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. It's a union afforded through the forgiveness of our sins, a union afforded through the expiation or removal of our guilt. It's a union afforded through our justification. It's a union that is initiated and applied and effectual through the operations of his spirit. It's that union that guarantees our security, that guarantees that we are free from condemnation. We've said this before, but all the blessings and benefits that flow to us from the Lord Jesus Christ are not just blessings, like let's say that this represents all those blessings. The Lord, these represent every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he confers those upon us when we're justified, and now we have them as our possession. No, no, no. Those blessings, those benefits are afforded us in our union with Jesus Christ. And it's our direct connection to the vine whereby we enjoy the blessings and benefits of that salvation. We don't have them apart from him. Eternal life is something that we don't own as our own possession. We're not the source of life. He is the source of our life. In him, we live and move and have our being. We're vitally connected with him. And that vital union with him is what guarantees our security from condemnation. You see, in eternity, in eternity, we will be free from any condemnation. Why? Because we are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my redemption. He's my righteousness. He is my salvation. He is my life. Do you see? It's a glorious, glorious promise. Apart from union with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, you will face the terrors of hell alone. Those who are in union with Jesus Christ will never face those terrors. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend. But if you do not turn to him in faith, then you'll face those terrors alone. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's our reality. 
praise God. Now notice the reason that Paul gives. Why is it that we are free from condemnation? Verse 2. For, or because, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now from here, verse 2, we're forced to deal with a variant reading of the text. If you're reading from the New King James, or the earliest manuscripts available, do not contain the words that come at the end of verse 1. So if you're looking at a New King James, those words, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those words are not in the earliest manuscripts. It would appear that the Latin Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate uh, was finished in late 4th century, Latin Vulgate appears to be the first to add the words who do not walk according to the flesh. And it would appear that later manuscripts then attempting to complete that thought in comparison to verse 4 added the following words, but according to the Spirit. So in late, very late editions, we see those words added at the end of verse 1, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, largely because the words only appear in those, those later manuscripts, there's really strong evidence to suggest that they are not original. And you'll notice that the text, again, is repeated verbatim in verse 4. So if you're reading from the New King James, we're going to pick that clause up when we get to verse 4, okay? And that's where all the manuscripts agree that those words are to be found. Now, incidentally... <laughs> If this is your first experience with textual criticism, that's what that's called, dealing with variants in the text, do not be alarmed. We have, in the Bible, we have thousands of manuscripts, tens of thousands of ancient copies of texts of the Bible, tens of thousands. And because those, some of those copies contain different readings of a particular text, those variant readings require textual scholars to determine which reading is original. What we're trying to get to is the original language or authorial intent. But listen, it's precisely because we have so many manuscripts that that process is well done. It's because there are tens of thousands of manuscripts that we can be completely confident in the Bibles that we hold in our hands, right? It's unlike the Muslims. Seventh century, the Muslims come along and burn Every copy of the Quran except one, because they were frightened that it was somehow, you know, not inspired if there were so many variant copies of the Quran. So they burned all their copies except one, the Bible, no. The Bible has withstood criticism over centuries because we have tens of thousands of manuscripts of the Bible. When you have that many copies, you can do a really good job of coming to what we think for sure is the original. It helps us come to the original text. Unlike the Quran, textual criticism, those many manuscripts help bolster our confidence in the Bible, do you see? Rather than diminish. It's not like the telephone game. Give me a break. You know, one person, one person, one person, one person, the story completely changes. No. We have thousands, tens of thousands of manuscripts so we can have confidence in our Bible. But we do have to, when we come to the study of Scripture, we do have to do a good job of dealing with textual variants. There are variants in the Bible. Okay, that said, here's what we believe to be the best reading then of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. The best reading of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, there is therefore 
now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Do you see? Now, if you're reading an ESV or an NASV, that's the way that it reads. Now, the way that we understand what Paul means when he refers to the law of sin and death, there at the end of verse 2, the way that we understand that is through context. Through context. What does Paul mean when he refers to the law of sin and death? Well, it's in the context that we see an evident comparison to that statement at the end of verse 2. Look at chapter 7, verse 21. Verse 21. In describing his ongoing battle with sin, Paul says this, I find then a law. He finds a principle, a general rule, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see this other principle, this, this general rule, this, this law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. That phrase, the law of sin, is the comparison. Do you see it? When we looked at that text, when we studied that text together, we concluded that Paul is referring there to his indwelling sin. Paul's referring to his remaining corruption. Now, he refers to it again at the end of verse 25. You see it at the end of verse 25, the law of sin. That's what he's serving with his flesh, with the old man. That law referring to a principle. More particularly, that, that phrase, that clause, law of sin, referring to a power. Dr. Murray calls it a regulating power, a governing power, an actuating power, a power that seeks control or seeks influence over you. That law of sin referring to the old man. Now, Paul expands on that expression then in chapter 8, verse 2, by referring to that principle of indwelling sin, not only as the law or the principle of sin, but now as the law or principle of sin leading to death. The law of sin and death. Chapter 7, verse 5. Chapter 7, verse 5, referring to the sinful passions that are within us, those passions aroused by the law at work through the law in our members bearing fruit to death, sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me, Paul says, through what is good, through the law, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Now this is what Paul refers to as the law or the power of sin and death, Romans chapter 8 verse 2. The power or the principle that regulating or governing principle of indwelling sin. Now, notice the comparison. To be free from condemnation, verse 1, is to be free from the law of sin and death, verse 2. Do you see that connection in those two verses? To be free from condemnation, verse 1, is to be free from the law of sin and death, verse 2. To be free from condemnation, verse 1, is to be free from the power of that regulating or governing influence of indwelling sin, of remaining corruption, the old man. There is no condemnation, verse 1, because we have been made free from the law of sin and death. Free from the power of, the indw- of indwelling sin. Free from the old man. Do you see the, the connection? Now, what is Paul saying? What is Paul saying? Well, think with me, what is it that brings us under condemnation? What brings us under condemnation? Indwelling sin brings us under condemnation. Our sin 
brings us under condemnation. Sin, as we've already studied in chapter 7, chapter 6, sin exerts its power, exerts its influence by hijacking that which is good, the law of God. Verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11, sin taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and through the law, through the commandment, it killed me. So then, to be free from that power is to be free from death and to be free from condemnation. Now, why is that? Why is that? It's because indwelling sin no longer has any power through the law to condemn us to a lifetime of slavery. Sin cannot any longer, through the law, enslave us. The principle in the law that sin used to enslave us to death is the law's condemnation. Through the law's condemnation, sin enslaved us to the power of sin and death. The penalty that was required by the law, the penalty that was due our sin, has been paid in full. We are no longer under the curse of the law. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law. Indwelling sin, therefore, has lost its power. Right? Um, sin. Where is your strength? Right? Hades, where is your victory? The strength of sin is the law. Sin has no power any longer. Sin has no victory. Hades' death has no victory. We're no longer under the curse of the law. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law. Sin has lost its power, the power that it exercised through the law to enslave us to condemnation. Therefore, there is now, at this present time, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the way those two verses fit together. And it's because, verse 2, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. No longer under the condemnation of the law, sin's power has been crushed. Sin's influence has been cut. The Spirit has set us free from the power of sin and death. The Spirit has set us free from slavery to indwelling sin. That's further evidence of the promise that was given to us in chapter 6, verse 14. Sin will not have dominion over you. Paul said, sin will not have dominion over you. Why? Because you're dead to the law. You're dead to the condemnation of the law. Because you have died to the condemnation of the law, the power that sin exercised through the law has been cut. It no longer, its throat has been cut. It no longer has power through the law to condemn you. And that condemnation is how sin brought you under bondage to death. No longer has that power any longer. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the condemning power of the law, but rather you are under the loving operations of his grace. Now, that's the comparison. No condemnation in the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death to what Paul speaks about in Romans 6, Romans 7. Notice the contrast then that is set up in our text. Notice the contrast. The law of the spirit of life is set in contrast to the law of sin and death. The two are mutually exclusive. Now, the spirit of life, the spirit of life there is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of life. The spirit of God gives a life. In particular here, referring to new life in Jesus Christ. We're made a new creation. Resurrection life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the letter kills, the law kills. The spirit gives a life. He is the spirit of life. Verse 17, 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is freedom. What does our liberty, our freedom consist of? Freedom, liberty from condemnation. Condemnation. Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit, the Spirit of life, will of the Spirit of life reap everlasting life. As the, the law of sin and death, as that law of sin and death refers to the governing power of sin and death, what Dr. Murray refers to as a regulating or actuating power, in contrast then, the law of the spirit of life should be understood as the regulating or actuating power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Paul says, I find another law in my members. I find another principle at work in my members. This, this law of the flesh, this law of sin and death. It's the law, the principle of the old man. And it's at work in my members producing death in me through sin. The law of the spirit of life for the believer, the spirit of life is at work in the believer as a regulating power as an actuating power in the life of a believer. And a believer can say, the spirit of life is at work in me, activating, regulating, governing, empowering me toward righteousness. I was once under the governing power of sin and death. I am now under the governing power of the spirit of life. Where sin exercised its wicked power unto death, the spirit exercises his power in me unto life. That governing power of the spirit of life is operative within me. Now think with me now about what we just spoke about a minute ago. That principle, that law of the spirit of life, that regulating power, that actuating power of the spirit of life at work in the life of a believer is in or through, it is wrought within me, it is operative within me through my union with Jesus Christ. And only through my union with Jesus Christ. If I weren't in union with Jesus Christ, I would not have the Spirit. And the Spirit would not be operative within me. Right? He who does not have the Spirit is not his. And in order for us to be empowered, strengthened, transformed by the Spirit of God living and working in and through us, we must be vitally connected to the vine. Apart from him, we can do nothing, Right? So it's in and through my union with Jesus Christ. I'm um, continuously just amazed at how glorious our salvation is and how God, through Jesus Christ, has taken care of every single detail that we could never have conceived of. This book not written by men. Give me a break. The Holy Spirit is the divine author of this book. And this is evidence of that. Glorious salvation. Like every detail conceivable, God has worked out in this masterful, indescribably wise plan of salvation through Jesus Christ and to the praise of his grace and to the glory of his son. It's an astounding work. Forgiven of our sin cleansed of all our guilt, credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, 
justified in the sight of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, brought into union with his Son, reconciled and now at peace, our penalty paid, the curse vanquished, freed from enslavement to sin, freed from the power of death, freed to live a new creation life, in power from the resurrection by the Spirit, not only delivered from the guilt of my sin, but also delivered from the power of my remaining sin, glory, all right? Hallelujah. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because the law, that principle, that governing power, the spirit of life in and through my union with Jesus Christ has made me free from that principle or that remaining sin that still exists in the old man and my flesh. Can you see how intensely helpful it is? How intensely practical sort of a theme for the day, right? How intensely practical it is to not merely see our freedom from condemnation as being freedom from the penalty of the law or from the guilt associated with our sin, but how intensely practical it is to see how our freedom from condemnation is also freedom from the enslaving an ongoing condemning power of my remaining sin or my indwelling sin. Those two are both true. And as you're battling sin in the Christian life, it helps you to constantly remind yourself when you're in the, the, in the heat of the battle, in the heat of the battle, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When you have sinned, Confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And remind yourself, rather than throwing yourself back under the condemnation of the law, where there is no power there to help you in your battle with sin, look to Jesus Christ and say in faith, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And through faith in Jesus Christ, You'll be victorious. The Lord has said sin will not have dominion over you. It's accomplished by a work of the Son, applied in my life by a work of the Spirit. And we are free. We have to live, live in light of that truth. That's living in the power of the Spirit, which we'll see as we work through chapter 8. That's living not according to the flesh, not according to the flesh. That's living according to the Spirit. What is my reality? One who has been justified on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone, what's my reality? There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation to those who are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks to my security and it speaks to the glory and grace of my surety. What is the reason? What is the reason that explains that glorious status to which I've been translated, that status which has been conferred to me as it relates to my remaining sin. The power, the power of the spirit of life in and through my union with Jesus Christ has freed me from the power of indwelling sin and death. The cause of this blessedness is rooted in the work of Christ. That's verse three. The purpose of this blessedness is obedience wrought by the Spirit. That's verse four. We'll look at those verses in part two next time we're together, if the Lord allows. Brothers and sisters, Paul is laboring on our behalf 
Paul is laboring to cultivate within us an assurance of our right standing with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace these promises. Apprehend them in faith. And can you imagine with me, can you imagine for a moment the kind of bold, joyful, thankful, fearless, courageous, confident, devoted, zealous, fervent, earnest, loving, worshiping Christians we'd be if we would live through faith in Jesus Christ and full assurance of these precious truths. All false religion is characterized by its reliance upon human effort. All false religion, all false religion characterized by its reliance upon human effort, including false professing evangelicalism, false professing Christianity. Easy believes them? You could walk out of here and throw a rock and hit a church that teaches that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's all over the place. And reliance upon human effort is the death knell of true religion. The death knell. There is no victory in that false religion. There is no victory in human effort. There's victory only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christus Victor. <laughs> many think of faith, many think of faith as a necessary condition for salvation. Many false religions require faith for salvation. But many, all false religions, believe that faith is not a sufficient condition for salvation. That's where we differ. Christianity is a religion of accomplishment. Accomplishment on the part of Jesus Christ alone. And faith is a sufficient condition for salvation. Many do not believe that. And they believe human effort. There's always something that we have to contribute. Always something, 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 something. Even so little is like, Walking that aisle and saying that prayer. I got to do it. I got to do it. Free will. I got to make that choice. Right? You know. Some way of saying that faith is not a sufficient condition for salvation. For example, uh, oxygen is a necessary condition for a fire. You have to have oxygen to have a fire. But oxygen isn't a sufficient condition to have a fire. <laughs> Oxygen is a necessary condition. Can't have a fire without oxygen, but you need more than oxygen to get a fire going, don't you? If oxygen was a sufficient condition, if you didn't need anything else to start a fire except oxygen, the whole world would be on fire. Right? So oxygen is not a sufficient condition to start a fire. In false religion, in false religion, take um, hang in there with me for a moment. Take Roman Catholicism, for example. In Roman Catholicism, faith is necessary to make one righteous. It's a necessary condition for righteousness. But faith is not a sufficient condition to make one righteous. What does the Bible teach? Faith alone saves. So in Roman Catholicism, what happens then? Works are necessary to justification. Baptism becomes the cause, the material cause of our justification. It cleanses you from sin. Good works make you, they infuse righteousness in you. They make you righteous. Well, what is the result of that way of thinking? As soon as you add human effort or reliance hum upon human effort to your salvation, what does that do in your heart and mind? Well, if you can be made righteous or acceptable to God through your good works, then you can be made unrighteous through sin. Use for example, how many times when you were in false religion, when you were in that false heretical religion, uh, ask Jesus in your heart and say this prayer, you know, kind of thing. How many times did you say that prayer just to be certain? 
Just to be, how many times? Just to be sure. I said it, and I meant it when I said it, but then what happens? You go back to your sin, and so what do you do? You do the work again, and you do the work again, and you repeat the little sacrament, you repeat the little sacrament, you repeat the little sacrament. Why? Because you have no assurance. No assurance that what you have done actually had any effect on saving you. And that concern is well-founded. It has nothing to do with saving you. If you can be made righteous or made acceptable with God through something that you do, then you can be made unrighteous through your sin. In Catholicism, it ends up in venial sins or lesser sins that won't ruin you. They'll do damage, but mortal sins will. You're back under the condemnation of the law. Back under the condemnation of the law, and sin regains its power through the law to condemn you. In your Christian life, in your Christian life, Paul is essentially teaching us in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, to stop thinking like a Catholic. Stop thinking like one who is trapped in that false religion or those false systems. Stop thinking like someone who has to contribute something to their salvation other than faith in Jesus Christ. Start believing, start living, start serving, start loving, start obeying as one grateful that it has all been done. Set free from condemnation that Jesus Christ has paid it all. In Catholicism, false religion, once your right standing with God has been damaged, you've got to get it back. So you have to establish another sacrament to restore it. That's where the sacrament of penance was made up. Penance is confession. Have to have absolution from a priest. Works, works of satisfaction in order to restore your justification. What is that? That's works righteousness. Through the sacrament of penance, the sinner earns merit where he's restored to justification until the next mortal sin. He has to do it all over again. You add to that the various types of merit then. How are we earning it? What does that look like? You have congruous merit. You have condign merit. Works of arrogation. Works of super arrogation. Together with Christ's merit and the Virgin Mary's merit. Fill a treasury of merit. From that treasury of merit, withdrawals can be made through earning or purchasing indulgences. With an indulgence, you can limit your works of doing penance. Or you can limit the time that you spend in purgatory where you burn off your sins. With the understanding that no one can enter heaven without first earning heaven somehow. Do you see? It was into that cold, convoluted corruption that an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther shouted, Faith alone in Christ alone. The moment I have faith is the moment I have Christ. And the moment I have Christ is the moment I have heaven. What gratitude, what joy, what love is authored in the heart by the Spirit through faith in Christ for those precious truths. What love, what devotion, what zeal, what earnestness, what, fervent, what heat, what victory by the Spirit such, brothers and sisters, that, that when your remaining sin, when your indwelling sin, when that old man seeks to exert its remaining influence over you, and even now, even now when the adversary comes and he whispers into your ear, you are a sinner. <laughs> Luther said, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell them this. I love this. Remember, rather than subject yourself to the further condemnation of the law, 
Luther says, say this, I admit, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? (laughs) For I know one who suffered and made full satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there shall I be also. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in my union to Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. All praise, honor, and glory to God for his indescribable gift. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, praise be to your name. Thank you, Lord, for this indescribable gift. It is a gift of your grace. It is a gift of your grace alone. And we praise you and thank you, Lord, that there is nothing that we should do to earn it. We simply cannot. We would be doomed if that were the case. But that you have freely, freely offered it for the glory of your Son, freely offered salvation to those who would put their faith and trust in him, that it would be to our eternal good and to his everlasting praise and worship. We praise you and thank you for this indescribable gift, Lord, and and pray that we would continue to grow in our understanding of that gift in its application to us by the Spirit through the person and work of Christ, and that we would grow in our maturity, apprehending the implications of that glorious truth, that we might be a people of joy, people of gratitude, a people of love, people zealous for good works, all for the glory of the Son, for the glory of your name. We pray this for the sake of our great bridegroom. Amen.